0: Welcome to 15 Minutes in Canberra. I'm Hayley Channer, Senior Policy Fellow with the Perth U.S. Asia Centre. My guest today is Sam Bashfield, soon to be Dr. Bashfield. Sam is a PhD candidate and research officer at the Australian National University's National Security College. Sam joined the NSC in 2018 and his research focuses on Indian Ocean security issues. So he's the perfect guest for our Perth U.S. Asia Centre audience. Sam's also extremely accomplished. He's received an ANU professional staff scholarship and the National Security College Award. Prior to ANU, Sam interned with the Jakarta Globe newspaper in Indonesia, worked at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, and he's also worked in government for the Attorney General's department. Sam, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Hi Hayley, it's a pleasure to be on on the podcast.
0: So how did you come to work for the National Security College at ANU?
1: So my background at the university has really been in languages and international relations and national security, both in an undergraduate and masters at Monash and also at the ANU here in Canberra. Um, I've worked across, since, since graduating, I've worked across a variety of research uh, project support roles, doing research assistance, and as you mentioned also, working in the public service at the Attorney General's Department. So as you mentioned, I've been at the National Security College since 2018, um, working in the executive education team initially, um, and also doing research assistance work while doing my master's program. In, 20, uh, in 2021, I switched to a full-time PhD study in, in February, and it's been a real privilege to be, you know, have self-directed um, learning, to really engage internationally, and to be given such a long leash in the backing of the National Security College to, to read and write. Um, I just love being given the freedom to tug at threads and jump down rabbit holes and uncover new insights and national security is really a fascinating subject as often it bows down to power and how power is established, how it's wielded, how it's perpetuated and even how power is lost as well.
0: Yeah, such a good point. I mean, you just articulated all the reasons why I like working in national security. (laughs) But in addition to working at NSC, you have also worked and lived overseas, including in Yogyakarta, Indonesia. Um, What was the experience like of living in Indonesia? Um, How would you describe Indonesian people? What do they think about Australians? And what should Australians know about Indonesian society that perhaps we don't know?
1: Yeah, Hayley, so Indonesia is such a fantastic um, country and such a, a, a privilege to study. I've, I've actually studied Indonesian since um, year seven in high school. Um, I did a student exchange to Malaysia during high school and then I continued that Indonesian study through through university and into honours. Um, but yeah, specifically, as you mentioned, I was in Jakarta and it's just such a fantastic place to study. Um, Jakarta is home to um, a variety of universities. So it's really home to a variety of students from around Indonesia. And one thing that, you know, I'd impress on Australians is just the cultural diversity that Indonesia bears. And, and really that, that's born out in all of the, the different cultures and religions and languages that, that the students in Jogjakarta speak and, and understand. And, you know, the Indonesian national motto is "Bhinneka Tunggal Ika," which means unity and diversity, or one out of, uh, sorry, out of one, uh, out of many, one which really exemplifies that, you know, Indonesia, just like Australia, is not um, culturally monogamous. It's it's, it's a wide variety of cultures and languages and and different backgrounds that are there.
0: One thing that's always intrigued me working in our field of strategic studies and international relations is the Australia-Indonesia relationship has had a lot of ups and downs, but we're very close neighbours, and I think the people-to-people links are very close as well. Is there a way you think um, the Australia-Indonesia relationship could get closer um, and something perhaps that we haven't been doing that we really should be doing to make the security relationship closer?
1: So I think the first thing to mention is is the horrible COVID-19 conditions that Indonesia is facing at the time of recording in July 2021. And, and, and you know, Australia should be doing whatever it can, as it most probably is, to assist Indonesia with this current spike. And, you know, whatever we're facing with COVID at the moment, it's it's much worse in Indonesia. But as you mentioned on the Australia-Indonesia relationship, you know, it is just a natural roller coaster, in my opinion. Um, Australian Indonesians have some common values and interests. We have some divergent uh, uh, values and interests. And I think that that it's just natural that, that you know the relationship at the government level will continue to be like a roller coaster and experience its ups and downs. But in terms of the, as the Perth US Asia Centre you know, engages in that geopolitical element of the relationship, I think it's really important that Australia and Indonesia continue the very close military cooperation that we enjoy. Um, you know, assisting Indonesia with purchasing the appropriate hardware and ensuring that any cooperation is mutual. And I think one thing that from my time in Canberra and also at at Sydney, at the University of Sydney, is the immense activities that Australia and Indonesia do do together and that are at the government to government level uh, currently and in the last few decades. I think often the, the the good news doesn't receive media attention, but the bad news does receive media attention. So often there, there is so much amazing work that goes on between Australia and Indonesia that maybe doesn't receive the media and social media attention that it deserves. But I think continuing that and, and working out how we can cooperate during this COVID pandemic and ensuring that that the engagement goes back up to how it was pre-COVID is, is really important because there is so much going um, um, beneath the surface that people just don't hear about.
0: That's so true. I mean, um, the only news you hear nowadays is really negative news, not just about COVID, but you don't get to hear all of the fantastic good news stories about how we're working with Indonesia on counterterrorism or policing or um, you know uh, illegal activities at sea. There is such a robust relationship there. Moving a little bit more to the West and looking to the Indian Ocean, I know you have been looking into um, the Indian Ocean and, in particular, uh, the British Indian Ocean Territory. Um, I wanted to speak to you about one of the islands uh, that's part of the British Indian Ocean Territory, Diego Garcia, and how there is a US military base there. Sam, can you talk us through, you know, how did a US military base come to be on this tiny island in the middle of the Indian Ocean and what is it that's controversial about Diego Garcia?
1: So that's right, Haley. So Diego Garcia is the largest atoll of the Chagos Archipelago, which constitutes the British Indian Ocean Territory. And the British Indian Ocean Territory is some 600 islands located right in the center of the Indian Ocean, um, just below the Maldives. So importantly, the US military base on Diego Garcia, although it's modestly sized, it's a critically important US military base. And it has um, a few roles such as its large and protected lagoon harbors uh, naval vessels and submarines operating in the region. It has quite a long runway that's capable of hosting the largest of US strategic bombers, such as the B-52 and the B-2. And it really enables the US's global strike concept, which uh, provides for prompt conventional weapon strikes anywhere in the world. Also, one third of the U.S. pre positioned of force is in Diego Garcia's Lagoon. So there's nine large cargo-esque ships that are brimming with military equipment from tanks and munitions and medical equipment and other vehicles ready to, to be deployed at a moment's notice and able to support units for up to one month that are in Diego Garcia's harbor. Lastly, it also has a myriad of communications and intelligence functions. So while this base is, is there and has been there since um, around the 1970s, the base has it's quite controversial at the moment for a couple of reasons so firstly there's a sovereignty dispute that's currently raging between um, britain and the and mauritius so one thing to mention is that the us this base belongs to britain um, and it's a technically a joint base between the us and and the uk however mauritius uh, believes that the territory was illegally dismembered from from mauritius back when Mauritius um, attained independence in
0: 1968. Oh my gosh, just remember. that makes it sound even worse, doesn't
1: it? <laughs> mm, exactly, exactly. And and that all went all the way to the International Court of Justice just in, in 2019 in a, a ruling in favour of Mauritius. But it's a really fascinating example of even when the UK and the US lose uh, cases, or the UK in this example, loses cases in international courts, they don't necessarily follow follow the opinions that were given. But there's also a human rights element to this issue as around 1800 people were forcibly removed from the archipelago in the late 1960s and early 1970s at the request of the US uh, to ensure that they'd have exclusive access to the entire archipelago. So these people and their descendants, who are now known as the Chagossians, have fought in British and international courts for their right to return ever since.
0: Okay, so what's the next step then with Diego Garcia in terms of legal battles or what can we expect?
1: So at the moment, we just have a continued stalemate between Mauritius on the one side and UK and the US on the other side. So Mauritius will continue to um, to uh, agitate for return of the archipelago. So they have foreshadowed uh, possible cases in the International Criminal Court. Um, and at the moment, we have no word from, from the Biden administration or from any officials since um, about any any updates of the policy. So at the moment, we just have Britain claiming that its sovereignty has been theirs and is rightfully theirs, um, and Mauritius who agitate for their return. So for Australian policymakers, you know, the British Indian Ocean Territory and, and the military base on Diego Garcia has been a really important um, staging post. So most ships, In the last two decades, most Australian naval vessels that head to the Middle East have been stopping at Diego Garcia. Obviously, the intelligence and communications function that are on the archipelago um, is is quite important and and would presumably be received and be beneficial to Australian interests. So, so far, Australia has been one of the only countries to support UK's claim of the territory. So Australia voted with the United Kingdom in 2019 at the International Court of Justice. Its policy since has definitely been in favour of continued. British sovereignty of the territory. And, you know, it can be safely asserted that Australia does um, attain quite um, quite a lot of benefits from having the US in the Indian Ocean and the commitment that that demonstrates to, to the um, favourable US balance of power in the area.
0: And I suppose too, Australia gets the benefit of having a resupply island in the middle of the Indian Ocean.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly.
0: Sam, so related to this is another dispute, um, this one involving India and Mauritius. Um, India's militarisation of an island that belongs to Mauritius, which I'm going to butcher the, the name of. Agalia?
1: Uh, Agalega?
0: Agalega. No wonder I couldn't say it.
1: Or Agalega, Agalega. depending Agalega. if you're in Australia or Britain.
0: Oh, yes. Look, if I was it still in Queensland, it would sound even worse if I tried church. <laughs> So why is this controversial? Um, What is happening with this island?
1: Sure, thanks, Haley. So this one, it's a bit less controversial. It's a bit more telling of of geostrategic developments in the Indian Ocean. So Agalega is a small series of islands um, about 1,100 kilometres north of Mauritius in the southwest Indian Ocean. There's about 300 inhabitants there. And the island is Mauritian territory, as you mentioned. So about five or six years ago, Mauritius and the UK entered in, uh, sorry, Mauritius and India entered into a partnership um, to develop uh, military facilities on the island. So while the island is not especially newsworthy, normally um, it's currently under the media microscope due to this new, uh, India's new military base that's being built on the island with the permission of the Mauritian government. So specifically, they're building a new 3000 metre runway, which will be capable of of accommodating India's growing fleet of P 8I maritime surveillance aircraft that would be operating in the southwest Indian Ocean. There's also a new port, um, a new deeper water port being developed on the island. Um, and, and also an array of communications equipment that, that's being installed there. So the project's set for completion uh, at the end of 2021, but recent Google Earth imagery um, has, has shown the real scope of this project, which analysts before didn't understand because the project has been very tightly held by both the Indian and Mauritian government. So. Recent google satellite imagery has really shown, um, you know, the, the extent of the runway, the extent of the port developments. And as I mentioned, there's a real, you know, human rights concern for these 300 inhabitants on the island, which is quite small. Um, and while there's no, uh, there's no suggestion at the moment that these people will be, you know, forcibly removed from the island, there's definitely um, life will never won't be the same for these people again with this new um, military facility operating. But it is also a lot of geopolitical elements to the to the new agar facility as this really extends india's reach into the southwestern indian ocean um, potentially this this new facility might be able to be used by other um, friendly countries that operate uh, p-8 sided maritime surveillance aircraft like australia and india um, and it's really a, an indication of, of you know growing uh growing expansion of, of india's strategic interests in the area and um and the importance that it places on that southwestern indian ocean area.
0: Sam, you've had uh, a very interesting and diverse career working uh, across government and also overseas. I'm Wondering if you have anything that's been unusual or weird that's happened to you in your career that's a sort of funny story that you would like to share?
1: Yeah, sure, Hayley. So one thing that comes to mind is um, the, the PhD work that I'm doing at the moment is primary historical. And I'm spending a lot of time at the National Archives at Australia leafing through government archives, which mostly consist of memos, intelligence reports, cables and cabinet submissions, all related to the British Indian Ocean Territory, which there's mountains of it in, in Canberra at the National Archives. And while these reports can often be dry, sometimes formulaic and sometimes repetitive, Um, sometimes these meetings do go awry and and some of these details that end up in these reports make me laugh out loud sitting in the archive reading room and one example is a March 1974 meeting between Australian officials and the Shah of Iran before a visit that was uh, a visit to Australia by the Shah that was took place later that year. Um, Some of these documents that the officials put get very honest and put far too many details in, in in these um in these documents which they classify and think that that you know will never be released and for example, in this meeting that the Shah was complaining about having to negotiate with newly decolonized African nations for food imports you know he was saying that Australia will um supply Iran with uranium quote on binding terms and describing the Soviet navy as imperialist and the the best bit about it was that diplomats at the end of the of the short cable which was being sent um, uh, electronically back to australia said that further details of a one-sided discussion by bag referring to the diplomatic bag that would receive the full transcript so i'm not sure if they thought that these doc- documents would you know ever really get into the public eye and and, and you know be read publicly but you know these really give an insight into how national security and defense policy you know it really comes down to the people who are engaging in these meetings and and, and who are formulating this policy and they really paint a, a vivid picture of the scenes um, that take place and even though you know these meetings are happening every day between australian officials and and, and their foreign counterparts they're often hidden by security classification markings and aren't released for, for you know many decades. So I just love being in the archives and being able to see, you know, what happened several decades ago because it's definitely still happening today.
0: It's also a really dying art that people actually physically go to the archives to read uh, hard copy documents of things. So I'm really glad that um, you're doing that and producing the very valuable research that you are. Sam, thank you so much for sharing all of your insights and providing such a fantastic Um, overview of what's happening in the Indian Ocean. Really appreciate it.
1: Thanks Hayley, it's a pleasure joining you.